I also want to read for us this morning from Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would bless us, that you would be with us here, that you would speak to us through your word. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The year 2017 marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And as a way of acknowledging that and celebrating that, uh, I'm doing a series of sermons off and on this year about different reformational themes. And so uh, I'm picking up this week where I left off last week talking about uh, sola scriptura, uh, the reformer's view of the Bible. Now, in celebrating the Protestant Reformation, we need to be clear what we mean and don't mean by that. Uh, certainly we all acknowledge that the church is much older than the Reformation, and we can certainly trace our roots much further back, uh, back through the medieval church, to the church fathers, to the apostles, even to the patriarchs and prophets of the Old Testament. Nevertheless, the Reformation was a crucial event in the history of God's people, and it's worth acknowledging, it's worth knowing about it, it's worth celebrating. And so this year I will be preaching occasional sermons on various Reformational themes. And when I do this, I will often be departing from the kind of sermon I normally preach, we're just going through a passage of Scripture, and I'm going to mix in a lot of church history. And so today, that's what we're going to do. Today, we're going to continue looking at the Reformer's view of the Bible, which, as we saw last week, was also Jesus' view of the Bible, which is also the Bible's view of the Bible. What the Reformers had to say about the Bible is fully consistent with what the Bible says about itself. Now, anytime we talk about the Reformation and the Bible, it's important to understand the Reformers were not uh, rejecting tradition altogether. Uh, they didn't reject the authority of tradition. Rather, they wanted to test tradition by Scripture. And likewise, in their rejection of the, uh, the papacy, the office of the Pope, a universal bishop who has authority over all of the church and who can speak infallibly, yes, they rejected that, but they did not reject the teaching office of the church and the authority of that teaching office. Indeed, they insisted on it but they also insisted that the church's teachers and preachers submit themselves to Scripture as the final authority. And so by sola scriptura, they did not mean the Bible is our only authority. Rather, they meant the Bible is our highest and final authority, and this is because it is our only infallible authority. There are other authorities, but they can all go wrong. And if they do go wrong, how will they be corrected? Scripture. Scripture always has the last say. And, of course, the Reformers argued their case for sola scriptura from the Bible, but not only from the Bible, they also argued their case, somewhat ironically, from tradition, pointing out that many of the church fathers were very explicit about the uniqueness and sufficiency and finality of Scripture. And so what is the Scripture? What is the Bible? When we hold this book in our hands, what do we have? What are we holding? What is so glorious about the Bible? 
The Bible is glorious because the Bible is the Word of God written. When we hold the Bible, we're holding the very words of God in our hands. The Bible is inspired and inerrant. It is clear and authoritative. It is living and active. God not just spoke it, He speaks through it. And so the Scriptures give us the only true and adequate worldview. The existentialist philosopher said that without an in, uh, John Paul Sartre uh, said that without an infinite reference point, Sartre said, all finite points are absurd. And of course, Sartre said, "We'll just embrace the absurdity because that's all we have. We don't have an infinite reference point." The reformers, and of course, the church throughout the ages, has said, "No, the infinite God is our reference point, and we have access to God as our infinite reference point." through His Word, through the Scripture. We can know something because we rely on a God who knows everything. We can know truth because God is truth and God has spoken truth and preserved truth for us. That's what we have in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, we have a worldview, the only possible worldview, that makes rational thought possible, that, that makes rationality and science and morality possible. And so the Scripture is always the supreme judge. It's the supreme standard in everything pertaining to faith and life. It's our guide. It's our path. It's our lamp. It's God's truth to us. How do we know this? How do we know the Bible is God's Word? We know the Bible is the Word of God because Jesus said, My sheep will hear My voice and follow Me. We know the Bible is the Word of God because in it we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. We hear Jesus speaking to us in this book. And so theologians have said that the Scripture is self-authenticating. Oh sure, there are all kinds of evidences you can go to outside of the Bible that you can point to to confirm the truth of the Bible. To confirm in various ways that the Bible is God's Word and it is trustworthy. But in the end, we know the Bible is God's Word not because we can evaluate and uh, judge the evidence properly for ourselves, in the end we know the Bible is God's Word because it has intrinsic authority. It carries within itself all the marks and qualities of a divine book. We know the Bible is God's Word the same way we know sweet things are sweet. This is how John Calvin put it. He said, just as we know black things are black and white things white and sweet things are sweet and bitter things are bitter, so we know the Bible is the Word of God. And of course, he was just echoing the psalmist who put it this way in Psalm 19. God's Word, he says, is sweet like honey from the honeycomb. You know this is the Word of God because when you taste it, you taste its goodness, you taste its godness. We know that it is the Word of God because it is self-authenticating and the Holy Spirit enables us to taste that sweetness. The Holy Spirit gives us taste buds, taste buds so we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We can taste God in His Word and affirm, yes, this is the good God speaking to us. The Holy Spirit gives us eyes and ears to see and hear the voice of God in this book. And so we can say with firm conviction, this is the Word of the Lord. The Word of God is truth and we possess it. God has given it to us. This morning we're going to continue to explore sola scriptura in its historical context in the 16th in the 16th century. Uh, we want to compare scripture to its rivals, and we also want to understand what it means to confess sola scriptura in our own day. 
Especially when Christians often disagree over what the Bible actually teaches. It's one thing to say the Bible's the Word of God. It's another thing to actually say, and this is what God has said to us. We're going to see that the issue is not just do we believe in the authority of Scripture, but what do we do with Scripture in our daily lives? It's not enough to confess the right things about the Bible. We actually have to submit ourselves to the Scripture and be shaped by the Scripture. The Reformers were very clear in showing us that Jesus' followers must be Bible followers. If you're going to submit yourself to Jesus, you must submit yourself to the Scripture. Jesus' people are Bible people. Martin Luther said anyone who wants to hear the voice of God speaking need only open the Bible and read. And so it is. The the Scripture is the voice of God speaking to us. It is the Word of God written. Uh, Our focus this morning is going to, especially be on Galatians 1 and 2, but I will make reference to a few other passages as we go. Uh, Well, let me get into this this morning with a couple of historical anecdotes. A couple of historical anecdotes. In 1378, Pope Urban VII was elected. But Pope Urban quickly fell into disfavor because he tried to curb some of the corruptions and excesses of his predecessors. Several of the popes before Urban had lived very immoral lives. Uh, They had sold church offices for money, the practice of simony. Uh, And and Urban came in and he tried to correct some of these uh, corruptions. He wanted to limit the extravagant luxuries that the papal court had enjoyed. And of course, this didn't go over too well. And so soon some of the cardinals rejected his election. It was a not-my-pope kind of moment. Uh, And so the cardinals got together and elected a replacement pope, Clement VII. But Urban would not accept his, uh, his removal. He would not accept the replacement. He continued to claim he was the true pope. But Clement made the same claim. He said, no, I have been elected pope. And so each denounced the other. And the best theologians and canon lawyers of the church could not figure out what to do. They could not figure out how to resolve this dispute. And so the church had two popes, each with his own following, each claiming to have universal authority over the church and the power to speak infallibly. And so with two popes, how are you going to know which one is the right pope? No one knew who the true pope was. And so finally in uh, 1409, uh, in the Council of of Pisa, uh, the cardinals hoped to end what had become known as the Great Schism or the Great Papal Schism by electing, you guessed it, a third pope, Alexander V. However, neither of the other popes accepted this new pope, and so now you had three men claiming the title of pope, each demanding the allegiance of the entire Western church, and of course the people having no way to know who the true pope was. Well, finally, the Emperor Sigismund got involved and he called the Council of Constance in 1414. And in this council, he did not let the cardinals vote. After all, they were the ones who had caused all these problems. Instead, representatives from various nations in the empire voted by nation. And incidentally, this is really the beginnings of, you can use this event to mark the beginnings of nationalism in Europe. This council deposed all three standing popes, accused each one of various crimes, and elected a new pope, Martin V, in 1418. And thus, largely through the sheer force of the emperor, the great papal schism was brought to an end. 
and order was restored. But the damage was done. Many people had lost respect for the office of the papacy. The institution itself was tarnished. Uh, indeed, a number of other events would further damage, damage the uh, institution of the papacy. For example, in 1440, so just a little bit later, uh, the, the humanist scholar, the Renaissance scholar, Lorenzo Valla, uh, definitively proved that the donation of Constantine, a document in which the Emperor Constantine back in the 4th century had supposedly granted to the Pope temporal and spiritual power over the entire Western Empire, a document the popes had regularly appealed to to justify their actions, Lorenzo Valla definitively proved this was a forgery. The whole document had been fake, probably sometime in the 8th century. And so long before the Reformation, questions about the authority of the Pope, the relation of the Pope to church councils, and the relation of the Pope to Scripture were being raised. Those kinds of questions were already on the table. Now fast forward about a 100 years from the Council of Constance to June 1519. By this point, the Reformation is well underway. It's been underway for almost two years. Uh, Martin Luther has become something of a celebrity or a criminal, depending on who you ask, but he's certainly a well-known figure in Europe by this point. And Luther was summoned to Leipzig to give an account of his teaching. This event would become known as the Leipzig Disputation. Martin Luther had, was a monk. Uh, he was a university professor. Uh, he basically studied and taught the Bible full time. Uh, indeed, you could say in, in, in many ways, the Reformation was birthed out of Luther's Bible study, uh, Luther's study of the Scripture. And as Luther was studying the Scripture, he came to see that the righteousness of God spoken of in Scripture is not the standard by which God condemns us. It can certainly serve as that. But more than that, the righteousness of God is a gift God gives to us in Christ Jesus. God's righteousness is His covenant faithfulness. It's the salvation He has won for us in His righteous Son, the righteous One, Jesus Christ. And so Luther's study of, uh, of Romans in particular, but also especially Galatians, was really the spark that started the fire of the Reformation. This rediscovery of the Gospel, that the righteousness of God is His covenant faithfulness and His gift to us in Jesus Christ. But some people wanted that fire put out, the fire of the Reformation. They wanted it extinguished. Luther's great discovery was certainly a threat to the status quo. And so he was called to give an account. And quite literally, every time he went to one of these meetings, his life was on the line. He didn't know if he would make it out alive or not. At Leipzig, Luther was accused by leading medieval theologians like Johann Eck of teaching the same kinds of things as Jan Hus, who had been condemned by the church and burned at the stake a hundred years earlier, Incidentally, at the Council of Constance, the same council that ended the great papal schism and elected, elected Martin as Pope, that same council condemned Jan Hus to be burned at the stake. And just as a side note here, when, uh, when Hus was going to be burned at the stake, as the executioner came to light the pyre so the flames would consume him, the executioner said to Hus, now we will cook the goose. And Huss replied, yes, but in a hundred years there will come a swan you can neither roast nor boil. A prediction, I won't call it a prophecy, but a prediction obviously 
fulfilled in the life and work of Martin Luther. Luther actually had not read Huss to this point. He went to read Huss after Eck accused him of being a Hussite, and he said, what do you know? I am a Hussite. He said to his fellow reformers, he said, we're all Hussites. That's all this is, uh, is, is the teachings of Huss uh, have, have made it over here. But what's interesting is in this Leipzig disputation, it quickly became clear that the issue was not just the content of Luther's teaching. The issue was authority, specifically the authority of Scripture. Everything came down to this. See, Eck could demonstrate that Luther was teaching positions that the church had rejected when Huss was condemned a hundred years earlier. But Luther could demonstrate his positions from the Bible, and so it set up this showdown. The authority of the Pope who had condemned Huss already versus the authority of the Scripture. That was it. And of course, Luther chose Scripture. He said the Council of Constance had erred in condemning Huss. Eck asked him, he said, do you alone know the Gospel? Do you alone know the truth? Is everyone in error but you? And this is what Eck this is what Luther told Eck. Luther was so good at making these uh, speeches. Luther always, by the grace of God, rose to the occasion. He said this when Eck asked, are you the only one who knows anything? He said, I answer that God once spoke through the mouth of a donkey. Now, Luther loved that passage in Numbers 24 where God spoke miraculously through uh, Balaam's donkey. And if God spoke through a donkey, He can speak through me. It's really the point. He said, I will tell you straight what I think. I am a Christian theologian, and I am bound not only to assert, but to defend the truth with my blood and death. I believe freely and will be a slave to the authority of no one, whether council, university, or pope. In other words, Luther asserted, I am going to submit myself to Scripture alone, ultimately. And in one move, Luther had not only dethroned the Pope from his position of authority, but Luther had enthroned Scripture as supreme. Now, by what right did Luther do that? X question, after all, is not a bad question. Luther, are you alone right? How can you stand in judgment of popes and councils in this kind of way? Well, look at Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9 that we read earlier this morning. And let me give you a little background on this uh, Galatians passage as we look at this. Paul had evangelized the region of Galatia. He had gone throughout Galatia preaching the gospel of salvation in Christ alone. And Paul preached, even you Gentiles can enter into the family of Abraham, the family of God. Apart from the Jewish law, apart from works of the Jewish law, apart from living Jewishly, trust in Christ as Messiah and be baptized and you will enter the family of Abraham and share in God's covenant renewal meal. You will be a child of Abraham and a child of God by faith alone. But after Paul went through preaching this message, preaching the gospel, some false teachers, they're often called Judaizers or agitators, they came in and they told Paul's converts, Hey, actually, that Paul guy, he said some things that were, that were good and true, but actually he didn't go far enough. He didn't tell you everything you need to know. And these agitators said, look, if you really want to be children of Abraham and if you really want to be a full citizen in God's family, then you've got to be circumcised. Because God gave the law and the law is forever. You've got to be circumcised and live Jewishly. And so word of this gets to Paul and then Paul writes this letter to the Galatians to combat this corruption of the gospel. And so look at what he says in these opening verses. And you can 
feel Paul's rage coming through uh, the words here as he is angered by this corruption of the gospel. He says, if we, that's we apostles, or an angel from heaven preach any gospel to you other than what we have preached to you already, let him be accursed. He says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, even a pope, Martin Luther would add, if anyone preaches any gospel to you other than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now this is Paul's defense of the gospel against those who would corrupted. But it's more than that. There's more going on here. What is Paul doing? He's telling the Galatians to judge for themselves the teaching they receive. Paul expected ordinary Christians like these Christians in Galatia to have such a secure and sure knowledge of the Gospel and interpretation of the Gospel. He expected these ordinary Christians to have such a sound, basic knowledge of Scripture that they could stand up against apostles, angels, even Peter or Peter's supposed successors if they proclaimed a counterfeit gospel. He expects them to recognize a corrupted gospel and stand up to it. Paul does not say, oh, you need a pope to infallibly interpret the gospel for you. No, he says, you're going to recognize a false gospel. The gospel is clear, and even you as ordinary Christians can recognize it when the gospel gets corrupted by an apostle, by an angel, by a pope, by anyone. And this interpretive competency is theirs, of course, because they are led by the Holy Spirit to rightly understand the Scriptures. It's theirs, this interpretive competency is theirs because the Scriptures are clear enough to be easily understood in their basic message. See, really, the clarity of the Bible's basic message is at issue. It was at issue there with Paul and the Galatians. It was at issue in the 16th century with Luther and the Roman Catholic authorities. But the basic clarity of Scripture is reinforced all over the place in the Bible. Remember 2 Timothy 3? We read it last week. And where Paul talks about all Scripture being God-breathed. But in that same context, Paul says to Timothy, the Scriptures you learn from your mother and your grandmother even in infancy. In other words, the basic message of the Bible is clear and simple enough that even a child can understand it. Remember Jesus said we have to become like children to enter the kingdom. It's not complicated. Now that's not to say that all the Scripture is easy to understand. In another place, in 2 Peter 3, uh, Peter says that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. And because of that, people will take those hard to understand things in Paul and they will twist them to their own destruction. But they don't need to do that. Even though there are certain things they can't understand, they should be able to grasp the basic message. The basic message of the Bible is clear in its essential. And it, this is why, if you look at Jesus and his controversies with the Pharisees and the Gospels, you know, the, the, the Jews, the Jewish leadership, they just didn't understand what Jesus is all about. Jesus never blames that on the obscurity of the Bible. He never says to the Pharisees, well, yeah, I understand why you don't really understand what Moses, that Moses was really writing about me, because after all, that's really hard to understand. No, he asserts that the Scriptures are clear, and then he blames their hard-heartedness, their unbelief, their sin. That's why they don't get it. So in John chapter 8, Jesus is debating with the Pharisees, and he says, 
Why do you not understand what I say? Jesus has been appealing to Genesis. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And how Abraham looked ahead to his day and rejoiced. Then he says to the Pharisees, why do you not get it? Why do you not understand what I say? And then he says, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. In other words, the reason you're not getting it is not because it's hard to understand. It's not because you're not smart enough. It's simply because you don't like it. And that's why you don't understand it. You've got the same kind of thing a bit earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 5. Jesus tells the Pharisees that Moses wrote of him. And he says to them, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. They miss what... These were students of Scripture, the Pharisees. They studied the Scriptures all the time, but they missed what they were all about. Not because they're so hard to understand, but because they didn't like what was there. And so they missed Jesus as the fulfillment of it of it all. Or think even of Jesus with his own disciples. You know, the disciples didn't get it a lot of times also. But again, the Bible's not to blame. The disciples themselves are to blame. In Luke 24, he's with his disciples walking on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection, and they clearly aren't piecing things together the way they should. And he says to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow apart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, the prophets are clear, but you miss it because your hearts aren't right. You're foolish and you're slow to believe. See, when the gospel is distorted, when it's corrupted in various ways, or when Christians disagree, the problem is not with the Bible. It's with our blindness, our ignorance, our unbelief, our hard-heartedness. That's where the problem lies. The problem is on our end, not on the Bible's end. The signal's going out clear, but sometimes we scramble because we don't like what is communicated. But see, precisely because the Gospel message is simple and clear throughout the Scriptures, Paul can say to the Galatians in chapter 1, you should be able to identify and reject false Gospels. No matter what credentials the teacher has, even if it's an angel from heaven, you ought to be able to recognize corruptions of the Gospel. He says to the Galatians, you all are guardians of the Gospel. Paul here is what you could call a champion of private judgment. Yes, he gives to Christians the right to examine and test everything they are taught. You've got the same thing going on in Acts 17 with the Bereans. The Bereans are called more high-minded or more noble because they received the Word of God with eagerness. They were ready to receive the Word of God. And when Paul came and preached to them, what did they do? They went and examined the Scriptures to see if Paul's message was in line with previous revelation. Hey, is what this Paul guy is saying consistent with the Scripture God's already given to us? And they found that it was, and so they believed. And of course, the Bereans are a model. We're all to be Bereans searching the Scriptures. This is not a responsibility you can pass off to others. You are responsible to examine the Scriptures to test the teaching you hear. Now, don't misunderstand. Uh, this does not mean that Paul is advocating solo Scriptura, uh, which I talked about last night, last week, and critique uh, last Sunday. You know, and so the solo Scriptura model, which is so popular in the church today, it's really just me and my Bible or really more often, me and my Bible and my experience. And experience becomes the infallible judge of everything. No, that's not, that's not what Paul's doing. That's not where he's going. I mean, think about it again. When Paul tells the Galatians, he says, 
if it's any gospel other than the one we already preached to you. So they did receive the gospel from, from a teacher, from a preacher. And they're to test the claims of the false teachers against the teaching they've already been given and against the claims of Scripture as a whole. And of course, this is going to take place in the context of their whole church community. It's not just something each individual rushes out and does. It's something that takes place in the context of the body. And it's the same thing with the Bereans. They didn't each individually go pour over their Bibles at home. They didn't have Bibles at home anyway. But they studied Scripture together in community, pouring over their Scriptures together as a body. And that's how they came to this conclusion. So it's not, this is not some kind of raw individualism getting inserted in. Community is still there. The need for teachers and tradition is still there. All of that's still in place. But you see the responsibility we each have to test the teaching we're given, to search the Scriptures. And you see, too, this strong affirmation of the clarity of the Scriptures. Galatians 1, 8, 9 fit Luther's situation perfectly. Luther, after all, had learned the gospel not on his own. Sometimes it is presented that way. Even said, you know, the Reformation was born out of Luther's Bible study. But all of Luther's Bible study took place in community. Uh, he had great teachers like Stoppitz, a man who was a real mentor to Luther and helped him understand the grace of God and, and, and the offer of free salvation in Christ. So he had teachers in the monastery like, like Stoppitz who helped him. He had studied the church fathers and studied the tradition of the church. He studied the Bible in the context of community with his colleagues and with his students. So Luther was not some kind of renegade individualist. But when the time came, he was able to identify corruptions of the gospel and stand against those corruptions in the late medieval church, just like Paul expected the Galatian Christians to do in their day. In fact, not only was Luther's situation a lot like the Galatian situation in Galatians chapter 1, it was really a lot like the situation Paul describes in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul has to confront Peter to his face because Peter stopped sharing the communion meal with Gentile Christians. He withdrew his fellowship from Gentile Christians, in other words, insisting that they needed to be circumcised to be full members of the people of God. And so Peter functionally excommunicated these Gentile Christians. He would not share communion with them. And Paul says Peter had gotten out of line with the Gospel, and so Paul corrected him. Even when Peter became a false teacher, he had to be corrected, and Paul comes and, do, and does that. Now, the Reformers saw this passage in Galatians 2 as having a huge bearing on their own debates with the papacy, and I think there's a great deal we can learn from it. In the year 1302, Pope Boniface VIII issued a papal bull called Unum Sanctum. And this is supposedly one of those ex-cathedra uh, pronouncements, one of those official announcements that is therefore infallible. And it includes this line, this teaching. For every human creature, it is necessary for salvation to be subject to the authority of the Roman pontiff. In other words, the claim of unum sanctum is that if you are going to be saved, you must submit yourself to the Pope. That's the teaching of the unum sanctum. In other words, you have to be in submission to the Pope. You have to be united to the Pope in some way. It's not enough to be a baptized believer in Christ Jesus. You've got to have a connection with the papacy. 
Indeed, this is why today Roman Catholics will not let Protestants partake of the Mass because we're not in union with the Pope. We're not in submission to the Pope. And so our baptism and our faith in Jesus is not enough. There's a something extra that we need that goes beyond that. It's this connection with the Pope. Now, look at the situation as it's described in Galatians 2. And keep in mind that the Roman Catholic claim is that Peter was the first Pope, supposedly the first of the popes, and then all of his successors share in his same office. Paul describes a period of time when Peter withdrew his fellowship from believing, baptized, Gentile Christians. But clearly, Paul believed that these Gentile Christians were still saved and were still right with God, even though they were not in submission to Peter and even though they were not in fellowship with Peter. In fact, for them to submit to Peter and be in fellowship with Peter would mean that they themselves had joined in the corruption of the Gospel by submitting to circumcision. It's in Galatians 2. It's Peter who was in the wrong, not the Gentile Christians. And actually, those who were aligned with Peter and in fellowship with Peter and in submission to Peter during this period of time were cutting off Gentile believers and were therefore guilty of denying the Gospel. And so Paul comes to Peter and he finally corrects him and then of course Peter repents of his hypocrisy and he begins eating with these Gentile Christians once again. Peter's lapse was not permanent. Thanks be to God. But you see that you had a period of time where you have true believers and Paul acknowledges they're true believers and they're right with God and they're saved, but they are not in submission to or in fellowship with Peter. Do you see the implications of this? There's no way the declaration of Unum Sanctum can be true in light of Galatians 2. It cannot be necessary to salvation to be in union with or in submission to Peter because there was a time when that clearly wasn't the case. In Galatians 2, you have these Gentile believers who are not in union with Peter, but who are right with God. And those who are with Peter are actually out of line with the Gospel. They're the ones who are denying the Gospel. Peter had wrongly separated himself from those who were undoubtedly saved. And so those who had a link to Peter and were in submission to Peter in that period of time were in the wrong. And those who weren't in union with Peter and weren't in submission to Peter were in the right. And that is why, this passage is why, when Martin Luther was excommunicated by the Pope, he was unfazed. After all, the Pope's predecessor, Peter, had once excommunicated some Gentiles who were in the right, and Peter had been in the wrong. And that's what Galatians 2 Describes. See in Galatians 2, Peter, again, supposedly the original Pope, excommunicated true believers who did not comply with legalistic additions to the Gospel. Luther said, hey, you know what? History's just repeating itself. We've got the same set of issues going on. And so Luther sought to play the role of Paul to the Pope who was clearly in the role of Peter in Galatians chapter 2. The Pope cutting off believers for the sake of legalistic additions to the Gospel. And, and Luther as another Paul coming and seeking to correct that. See, in 1st century Galatia and in 16th century Europe, in both cases, the Gospel was being corrupted by legalistic additions. In the 1st century, it was Christ plus circumcision as necessary to salvation. In the Middle Ages, it was Christ plus submission to the Pope as necessary to salvation. And guess what? There are still various Christ plus 
Gospels in the world today and the church today that we must oppose. And that's why understanding this is so important. See, the reformers following Paul show us how to do it, how to oppose these false gospels. The Reformation truly was a recovery of the fullness, the graciousness, and the freeness of the gospel. Now, uh, I want to do one more thing here. One, one more thing that I think is very important. I've had this conversation with, with many, many Roman Catholics, sometimes priests, sometimes Roman Catholic lay people through the years. And of course, as I said last week, there are many faithful Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. That's not what is at issue here. But the issue is, how is the gospel to be understood? The Roman Catholic Church has certainly softened the claims of Unum Sanctum. Indeed, since the Second Vatican Council uh, in the 1960s, Protestant Christians are now considered separated brethren. And that's a, that's a good development. That's a, that's a healthy turn of events. And we have all seen how Roman Catholic Christians and Protestant Christians uh, have come together over the last several decades to better understand one another, to build on areas of common ground, to join together in fighting the cultural and political battles of the day, uh, such as the defense of the unborn and, and, and the defense of marriage as God defines it. But you will find that whenever uh, this issue of the papacy comes up, the, the response is always, well, without a papacy, every person ends up reading the Bible for himself in his own way, and it leads to interpretive chaos. And so you still have to have an infallible interpreter of Scripture to hold the church together. And that's why you Protestants have splintered and fragmented so much. It's because you each read the Bible in your own way, and that's why you've ended up with so many different Protestant denominations. Without an infallible interpreter of Scripture, as Roman Catholics have in the Pope, there's no way to resolve your differences, and so you end up with all of these church splits. There is no doubt that Protestants have divided and fragmented the church, and there's no doubt that's a problem. We don't want to find ourselves in the position of trying to defend what is indefensible. Indeed, we want to work against that. That's what things like the Theophilus Nevin lectures are all about. But, but let me just say a couple of things about this as we wrap this up. All, one thing to, 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 to recognize is that all Christians, I'm talking here about Protestants, Roman Catholics, and yes, we could even bring the Eastern Orthodox into this as well. All Christians agree on what the core of the Christian faith is because all Christians agree on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a summary of what the Bible teaches. No interpretation of Scripture that contradicts that creed can be right. And from the earliest days of the church, that creed has served as a rule of faith. But you'll note that rule of faith says nothing about Peter's successors. It says nothing about an infallible interpreter of Scripture. And so we have to ask the question, is an infallible pope really necessary? And how do you know when the pope is speaking infallibly? Roman Catholics will say, well, it's only when he speaks in his official capacity that he is infallible. Well, okay, how do we know when he is speaking infallibly? Roman Catholics actually don't agree amongst themselves on the criteria for when the Pope is speaking infallibly. Nor do they agree on how many infallible pronouncements the Pope has made over the centuries. There are a few that all Roman Catholics would agree on, but a number of others that are highly debatable. 
further does this infallible interpreter of the Scriptures in the papacy really help us? Does it really solve the problem of biblical interpretation? Let's say I'm reading my Bible and I want to know what a particular passage of Scripture means. Is the papacy going to help me with that? Well, has the Pope ever written an infallible series of commentaries on the Bible? No. No such commentaries exist. In fact, none of the supposed infallible ex-cathedra statements of the papacy exegete Scripture, not a single one. And so let's just say I'm reading in the book of Jeremiah, and I'm reading Jeremiah 27, and I want to know what it means. There's no infallible papal commentary I can go to to get the meaning. And that means the Roman Catholic reader of Jeremiah 27 has no advantage over the Protestant reader. We're both going to have to rely on the church's tradition, commentaries that have been produced by fallible teachers. We're going to have to rely on our own study of the passage. And ultimately, we're going to have to rely on the leading of the Holy Spirit. But you know what? Even if the Pope did produce an infallible commentary series, it wouldn't solve the problem. It would just push it back a step. Because then, instead of debating what the Bible means, we'd have to debate what the Pope meant in his commentary we'd still have to engage in a process of fallible interpretation. You cannot escape private judgment and interpretation. Unless, of course, you have an infinite regress. If the Pope writes an infallible set of commentaries on the Bible, do we need an infallible interpreter of those commentaries? And then we would need an infallible interpretation of that commentary, and so on and on and on, and it would never end. Now, so you cannot escape this whole issue of private judgment and interpretation. And what keeps us from falling into skepticism is there is a core tradition that all Christians agree on and we have the Holy Spirit. Christ has promised that the Spirit will lead us into the truth. And of course, we also know, as the Reformers asserted, the Scripture is clear. There's no reason to think that God mumbled through the apostles and prophets, but now speaks clearly through the papacy. No, the Bible is clear. And if we can't agree on the right interpretation of a text, again, the problem is with us, not with the Bible. Which is to say, all of our divisions in the Protestant world, many of which are just inexcusable and indefensible, those divisions are not due to the Bible's lack of clarity, some problem with the Scripture, but rather they are due to our sin. And I think you see this with the way the divisions are actually dealt with in the New Testament. Because see, already in the days of the apostles, when Paul and Peter were still around, Christians were dividing from one another over various issues. But in the New Testament, the answer to those divisions is never something like what you will hear from Roman Catholics. Submit to Peter or submit to the Pope and to his interpretation of Scripture. We've already seen a time in Galatians 2 where Peter was dead wrong. It was actually dividing the church rather than uniting it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says the Corinthian Christians have divided up according to their favorite teachers and apostles. And so some were saying, I am of Apollos and I am of Paul and I am of Cephas. They were dividing up according to their favorite teacher. And Paul does not address that situation by saying, well, really, you all should join the Peter party because he's the first pope and will give you the infallible interpretation of Scripture. Now, that's not what Paul does. What is his answer to the divisions? It's not something like the papacy. You get to his answer to the divisions in chapter 13. The love chapter. 
What is the answer to the divisions of the church? Humility and charity. You see this again and again in Scripture. The answer to our divisions is love. The New Testament makes this very plain. The antidote to Christians who are fighting with one another over what the Bible says is the love of Christ. We are to strive for like-mindedness in the context of loving one another. Now, I understand. It may seem strange for a sermon on sola scriptura to end with an exhortation to love one another. That wouldn't seem to be the most obvious application. But I think the Reformers would be very happy with that. And I think it's what the Apostles themselves did. Yeah, we disagree over the Bible all the time. What it teaches, what it means. What's the answer to that? We need to strive for like-mindedness, working together to understand it in community. We need to love one another. And our love will see us through those divisions. Indeed, if we love one another, we can disagree and find ways to continue working together. And that's what God calls us to. Let's give thanks and pray for these. Father, we do thank You that Your Word is clear and Your Word is infallible. We thank You that You have given us Your Spirit to lead us into an understanding of Your Scripture. And Father, we know that we often will understand the Bible differently from one another, but when we do so, we pray that through love we would continue to strive together to understand the truth. We pray that Your Spirit would continue Your good work in us. That we love one another, that we show humility towards one another. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.